So the talk this evening is about the sure heart's release, the sure heart's release. In our practice, as we all know, we begin to understand more deeply the changing, evanescent nature of this body and of this mind. We begin to know how to bring a moment-to-moment awareness to whatever is happening. This is our practice of mindfulness. That kind of awareness is very tender, very gentle, yet very clear as we bring it to whatever is happening in the body and in the mind. We do this so that the heart can unfurl, so that the mind and heart can unfold, so that what has not been seen can be seen also in a tender way, in a compassionate way. We learn when this happens to bring a courage and a clarity to whatever is happening. We learn to open to whatever is happening so that it can be seen honestly with sobering honesty. Even when it's difficult, this is our practice. So with this beautiful balance that we bring to our practice, the balance of being open, clear, honest. And on the other side is feeling protected by our gentleness, by our ability to be compassionate with whatever we open to. This enables us to see the path easily, to see the path clearly. When this happens, we understand in our hearts and in our lives, we understand what leads to happiness. And we cultivate that. We lean into that in a way in our lives where uh, we can nourish it. We also learn what leads to uh, suffering, what brings us to places of not peacefulness in our hearts so that we can relinquish that. We can learn to let go of what doesn't lead to the highest good for our own hearts and for others. So with these two as a basis, learning what leads to the unwholesome and relinquishing that, learning what leads to the wholesome and nourishing that, This is the beginning of the development of wisdom, the beginning of the liberation from ignorance, the liberation from greed, the liberation from hatred. And some people like to say the purification of greed and hatred and delusion, the uprooting of those tendencies from the heart. So for most of us, this happens bit by bit in ever-deepening ways. It happens over time. It's a very rare being where it happens to all of a sudden. As we deepen in our understanding and our practice of nourishing what leads to the good, relinquishing what leads to suffering, as we do this over and over again, we understand that no matter what happens to us outside in our lives 
or what comes up inside in our hearts in this ever-fluxing world of joy and sorrow and gain and loss, whatever happens, we can always wait for those ripples of sorrow, for those ripples of uh, difficulty, the habit patterns in our minds and our hearts. We can wait for them to calm down. No matter what habit patterns repeat themselves in the process of the mind and the body, deep within and beyond the pleasure, beyond the pain, we can experience life very clearly. And it doesn't have to ripple our hearts so much, less and less. In practicality, we feel in our lives that we can rely upon ourselves, that we can rely upon the wisdom that we have developed and are continuing to develop. We can rely on that confidently. Even though we make so-called mistakes and we uh, see the unwholesome habit patterns coming up in our hearts and in our minds and sometimes even acting them out, no matter what the stones are that are thrown into our hearts, the pond, the pool of our hearts, we know that it will always come back to some kind of clarity from which we can take greater action, greater peaceful uh, action. Our hearts and minds can return to natural stillness. So tonight I'd like to talk about our practice and how that produces the refinements of peace, the refinements of happiness. Not from acquiring anything, not from attaining anything, but from the meditative states of concentration, not even attaining meditative states of concentration, not even attaining spiritual knowledge, but from letting go, from purifying the heart of greed, hatred, and delusion. So this process that we're undertaking of, and this practice, this training of mindful awareness has immediate and far-reaching benefits. These are the words of Sogyal Rinpoche that talks about the immediate benefits of this uh, process, of this practice. The practice of mindfulness unveils and reveals your essential good heart because it dissolves and removes the unkindness or the harm in you. Only when you have removed the harm in yourself do you become useful to others. When I first started practicing, when I was searching for some peace of mind in my day-to-day life, some happiness that could be reliably accessible, I really didn't know where to go. I wanted some calm in my life. I was in my mid-twenties then, and I was really searching, as most of you have in your life, because you're here right now. It's probably been part of your life, too, knowing this, seeking this, searching. And uh, I was uh, with my three children. They were ages of like six and five, 
three, something like that, maybe a little younger. I was on my way home from somewhere, and I saw the sign that said there was a spiritual fair that was going on at one of the universities in California on the coast. So I stopped with them to look into that, and I went to this big uh, gymnasium, which was quite cavernous, and the children were all pulling on my shirt tails and my pants and kind of whining and making a lot of noise. They wanted to go home. And um, I was just really interested in knowing what, what there is to develop some calm. What could I do? And I was willing to do anything, of course, with three clamoring children. So in the corner, way in the corner, in the, on the right-hand side, I saw this sign that I could read. It was big enough. And it said, Silent Retreat. I head, headed for that sign like a bee, um, just ignoring everything else. And it turned out to be the first retreat I ever signed up for. I had no idea what I was getting into. I just signed up for it. And the people were so nice. Uh, they uh, made arrangements to take care of the children. And I really trusted them. Turned out to be very trustworthy colleagues of mine these days. And so uh, I began my path on the Dhamma towards understanding what it takes to be mindful, to know deeply the truth of life, and to head in that direction. So I went to that retreat, and from the beginning it was made clear to me that indeed the aspirations of finding some kind of day-to-day happiness, some kind of calm, uh, that was virtuous indeed. But it wasn't the ultimate aim of the path. It was much more far-reaching than that. I learned that there's a possibility to realize unconditional peace, a peace that didn't depend on anything at all, unconditional happiness, a kind of happiness that didn't depend on what I had in my life, whether it was a material goods or relationship or what I didn't have. It was beyond all of that. And it was called the unshakable deliverance of mind, the sure heart's release. So these are the words I'd like to read to you from the Buddha from the Majjhima Nikaya, the discourse on the simile of the heartwood. So the Buddha says, So this holy life, Brahmins, does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit, or the attainment of virtue for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit, or knowledge and vision for its benefit, But it is this unshakable deliverance of mind that is the goal of the holy life, its heartwood and its end. In another passage, the Buddha says, the purpose of my teaching of this holy life of the Dhamma is not for gaining merit, nor good deeds, nor rapture, nor concentration, but for the sure heart's release. This and this alone is the reason 
for the teachings of the Buddha. So during his lifetime, the Buddha made it clear that the development of virtuous conduct, concentration, knowledge and vision are indeed part of the path of this practice. The benefits are experienced, of course, and most importantly, they're onward leading to the sure heart's release, that unshakable deliverance from the endless cycles of deeply rooted tendencies, not just the acting out of greed, hatred, and delusion, but deliverance from the tendencies towards greed, towards hatred, towards delusion, to arise again and again and again. This is samsara, that it arises again and again and again. The sure heart's release, that profound liberation, the great peace beyond description. This is uh, from Nosholken Rinpoche. Rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind beaten helplessly by karma and neurotic thoughts like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara. Rest in this natural great peace. So how can we live this holy life? In one way or another, that's our question. All of our questions, we may articulate it differently. But how do we lead in that direction of the ultimate aim of the Dhamma? It is said that there are three areas of life that we can pay attention to that we can practice within, and actually that all of us are already practicing, that will support this profound liberation. And one of our teachers, Anagarika Munindra, talked about it in terms of the three pillars of the Dhamma. These three pillars are the practices of mindful awareness in different ways that kind of are the base that hold up uh, our practice. So the first area that we practice in is the area of dana, the practice of giving of oneself, the practice of giving. This is from the attitude of generosity. And the second area is the practice of sila, also a mindfulness practice, as is the practice of giving, the practice of living in harmony, refraining from harming through speech, through behavior, not just harming others, but harming ourselves through speech and behavior. The third area is called bhavana. There are two different kinds of bhavana. Bhavana is a development, the cultivation of the purification of the mind, the wisdom of the mind. And it's developed through concentration, and through wisdom, through developing wisdom. There's a story of the Buddha walking in the forest with a group of monks. And he bent down and scooped up a handful of leaves. And he asked the monks who were all around him, which is more, O monks, the leaves in my hand or the leaves in all the forest? And of course, the monks 
who were said to be fully enlightened. Of course they answered uh, correctly, which is more, the leaves and all the forest, they answered. And the Buddha replied to them, The knowledge of the fully awakened one is like all the leaves in the forest, but what I teach is like leaves in my hand. That is all that is needed for liberation, for freedom. Manindra used to always say, keep it simple, keep it easy, simple and easy, simple and easy like the leaves in one's hand. It doesn't have to be complicated. There are just a few teachings that will lead us to final liberation. And this was good news, because when you look at all the teachings of the Buddha that are recorded, it can seem overwhelming. In the beginning, I thought, oh, do I have to understand, memorize, read all of that? And Manindra would say, no, you don't have to. Really, the most important thing is to practice mindfulness, the teachings in the Satipatthana Sutta, and the other areas of life as well, practicing dana, giving, practicing sila, living uh, in harmony with ourselves, with others. Actually, in the beginning, he said, don't read anything. Just practice. Just practice. The simplicity of paying attention to these three areas of my life, these three pillars, has been a reliable place I could rest my heart, a reliable foundation that I knew deeply, intuitively, that the Dhamma would grow from. It came to that much simplicity to me, not even the leaves in the hand, but just the simplicity of practicing giving, practicing living in harmony, growing in wisdom from these two. So first, about the practices of dana and sila in general. If we look closely, and we don't have to look too hard either, we can see that when we practice them, they not only promote a sense of well-being for others, but they promote a sense of well-being for ourselves as well. When we give of ourselves, when we live with a sensitivity with others in mind, they feel uh, safe around us. They feel connected to our hearts. But we feel that too. We feel when we look closely at ourselves, when we live in harmony, when we speak carefully, when we act carefully, when we practice letting go through giving, we're not so plagued by feelings of unworthiness. We're not so plagued by feelings of disconnection, from feeling inadequate, from self-deprecation. There's a growing freedom from that because we can rely on our refraining from ways that lead to unwholesome uh, behavior in ourselves that lead to unpleasant results for others and ourselves. And when this happens, it gives us a kind of faith, 
a kind of confidence in ourselves that no one else can take away and also that no one else can really give us but ourselves. So with the practices of bhavana, um, this grows because we can practice living in harmony, because we can practice letting go. It brings forth the qualities of calm. It enables us to be more concentrated. It enables from that wisdom to grow. And from there, the unshakable faith in our ability to be free. So dana, sila, bhavana, these are all trainings. These are all disciplines. These are all mindfulness practices. This is from the heart essence of the great perfection. Now, in our day-to-day lives, we know that the more stable, calm, and contented our mind is, the more feelings and experiences of happiness we will derive from it. The more undisciplined, untrained, and negative our mind is, the more we suffer mentally and physically as well. So we can see only too well that a disciplined and contented mind is a source of one's happiness. And this is what we're practicing, these disciplines. When we take the precepts uh, before the Dhamma talk, or whenever you take the precepts, this is a discipline, a training. When we practice giving, when we take it seriously, this is also a discipline. This is also a training. Really, deeply, it's a training of letting go. So tonight, I'd like to explore and fill out the first and the second of these three pillars. And at a later time, I'll cover the last one, the pillar of bhavana, concentration and wisdom development. So first, the foundation of dana, the practice of giving. It's not only the act of giving, which dana means, giving, the act of giving, but it has to include that inner attitude of generosity, the really feeling that come, it comes from that feeling of generosity, a kind of conscious knowing that it's coming from our hearts, not the willy-nilly kind of giving that we do, which is also good, but can we make it deeper so that it comes from a very conscious place, a powerful place of clear intention? So from a general perspective, dana has two aims, and both come from ever-deepening understanding. When Manindra was giving me this teaching of uh, generosity, of giving, he said, he asked me, do you want to practice this with wisdom or without wisdom? And of course, I'm not fully enlightened, but I could answer correctly. (laughs) Of course, I want to practice with wisdom. So then he gave me this teaching. He said, the first aim is to help others, of course. We do it out of compassion, which is a uh, great uh, uh, wholesome quality of the heart. We do it out of joy, others, also, when we give of ourselves. We give our time. We give our energy, we give our kindness, 
we give our material resources. Of course, it relieves others of their suffering in the present moment or in the future. It inspires in them a sense of worthiness. That's a great gift we don't often think about. When we give to others, they feel, I'm worthy. That's a great gift that we give to others. They feel loved. It's an incredible gift we don't often think about, so that our gifts, no matter how small, when it's coming from that deep heart of um, an intention of uh, generosity, they're very powerful, those gifts, no matter how small. We inspire worthiness. We inspire a sense of you are loved. They feel connected, and they feel in that web of safety where they're connected, maybe at least to one being, maybe to several beings. And it's amazing how much protection this can give to people, how much of a sense of feeling safe, just by little gifts of connection, giving of ourselves, of our time, energy. It gives them a sense of inner richness. When we give something, even if it's immaterial, it's like we're saying, I recognize your beauty. I recognize your goodness. So it makes them feel loved and not just know it in their heads, but to actually feel it in the moment. That's really different from remembering that, oh yes, my family or my friends and or my friends love me. That's a different, that's sometimes it's just a thought. That's good, but when we really feel it, it has a different sense in ourselves and in them. It could be something so simple. I read this from uh, Random Acts of Kindness just before I was writing this talk. When I was going, this is a story from someone, when I was going through a very difficult time, someone called me up and played piano music for me on my answering machine. It made me feel so loved, and I never discovered who did it. (laughs) Now, I bet every one of you remember times like that in your life, when it was just something so small Um, someone from the last retreat I was at, I taught at the the retreat center, some of you were at, said that um, we had talked about bowing and why we bow. I'll I'll talk about, ask me if you want to know in personal interview. And um, it was just kind of like an off-the-cuff talk. And she said from that talk, she had never bowed, but she, it was her first retreat, and she bowed. It was like emptying of herself, as I had mentioned. And it brought kind of a, an unfurling of what needed to unfurl in her heart. Anyway, she said she sobbed for four hours and let it unfurl. And that was beautiful. And um, then she said that, She came out of her room, and on her slippers was a feather. And 
I just received this letter. I'm just remembering it now. And she said, and somebody cared about me. And it really touched me. And it made me feel so loved. And it was everything that mattered to her. You know, it just helped her. That feather, that she didn't know who it was from, helped her get through. So we never know where it comes from or who we're giving it to and what it means, but it can mean an awful lot. It may inspire gratitude within the recipients. That wholesome attitude is a gain for them. It's a healing. Gratitude is a medicine. And when when we give uh, something and someone feels gratitude, I feel happy for them, even though it's not out of a sense of, like, oh, I gave the gift, but it's out of a sense of, like, oh, that's a medicine for them if they feel gratitude in their hearts. So that's the first aim. It helps others. The second aim is that it will help ourselves, of course. This is understanding dana with wisdom when we see what it leads to. Helping ourselves, supporting our own well-being. Because what it leads to is we experience inner states of joy when we give to others. We may experience compassion because we see the suffering in another. And so compassion comes out of our hearts very spontaneously, and from that we give. Loving kindness, equanimity. I wondered about that, and one of our teachers said, Upandita said, in order to part with what, what is ours, even our time, our energy, we have to have some equanimity in order to part with it. So it brings an immediate happiness, those experiences, bring happiness to us in our own hearts that no one can take away. And it really comes from what we gave away, not what anything, not about anything that was given to us, but that we gave something. Beforehand, with the intention to give, there's happiness. At the time of giving, there's happiness. Afterwards, there's happiness. And that kind of joy also is a medicine to us, a healing energy. Often, when I reflect on the act of giving, after it has happened, even when I think about something that happened a long time ago, just even now, if you reflect on it, when you've given something, and when it's truly touched your heart because you can remember it now, Think about how that feels. Reflect on how that feels in your own heart-mind. The medicine, the healing that it is for you in the moment. It's powerful. It develops a sense of inner wealth and inner richness in ourselves. It counteracts a sense of inner poverty, that poverty mentality that sometimes we suffer from that we don't have enough or that we aren't enough. We're inadequate. So it develops this inner richness in us, which is a gain in our practice on the path. So generosity, giving, is medicine for clinging, for holding on 
because it's developing the opposite. As we do it over and over in our lives, there's an easefulness of letting go in all the areas of our life. Not just material letting go, but letting go of the need to be right. Letting go of what we know. As you probably all have realized one way or another, we have to let go of what we know in order to let new knowledge come in. We let go of views and opinions, of resentment, letting go of blaming others. There's so much uh, that we can let go of that that emptiness would be a wonderful thing in our lives. This is from the Ituvitaka, from the Buddha's words. If beings knew as I know the results of sharing gifts, they would not enjoy their use without sharing them with others. Nor would the taint of stinginess obsess their heart. And even if it were their last and final bit of food, they would not enjoy its use without sharing it if there were anyone to receive it. I knew later when I would uh, watch Manindra Uh, do certain things when he was visiting us in our home, and Indra is one of our teachers, that he must have understood uh, these words of the Buddha deeply. Because oftentimes we'd sit down at the dinner table, and what he had on his plate, which rightfully belonged to him, even though it was given, so now it belongs to him. From his plate, he would feed us. He would peel the banana And then he would stick it in our mouths directly. You know, he'd like that kind of directness. He'd take the food from his plate and he'd say, may I share this with you? And he would put it on our plates. He would also, um, when I wasn't there, I'd come home and I'd say, were you okay to be alone at home? Because I would go to work and I'd leave him there for a while, check on him. And he'd say, I'm okay. I have the birds and the cats and the dogs and the insects, and even I share the food with the insects and the cats. You know, he would give a little to the ants, give a little to the cats, to the dog. He understood deeply about sharing of the gifts. No wonder we had so many cockroaches, you know. (laughs) He also gave the Dhamma, of course, you know, it said that the, the The highest gift is the Dhamma, the giving of the Dhamma. And even when he was, during that time, he was recovering from some illness. And um, he would invite me to sit with him in the morning, and he would chant uh, paritas or protection chants in the morning for all of us. And then he would um, give direction to me in the Dhamma and also some give a little Dhamma talk. Sometimes he would do this laying down because he wasn't well enough to sit up. Or even if he sat up, he wasn't that well during this time of recovery. So even when he was sick, he would give the Dhamma. And he would say he doesn't own anything because he is called a homeless one, but he would give what he could. So the far-reaching benefit and result of the practice of giving and generosity is, of course, the development of the heart and mind of non-greed, of non-clinging, 
One of our teachers, Utejaniya, says it's giving away your greed, really. It's giving away greed in your heart. So as we continually practice giving, generosity, non-clinging, it becomes natural for the mind to let go, to let go of all concepts, all ideas, all opinions, projections, those things that keep us not free, not deeply peaceful. It's so easy to just let it go. Achan says, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace and freedom. So eventually, at the end of our physical lives, of course, we want to develop this ability to really let go, let go of everything. Our loved ones, our physical body, hearing, seeing, sensations, the mind. Let go of all intentions to do anything more. Or when conditions are right, to let go of all formations before the physical death for complete peace and freedom in this very life. That can happen. So that's the first pillar, the pillar of generosity, the pillar of giving. And the second is sila. Sometimes uh, it's translated as morality. But if we look more carefully beyond those words of morality, which can have... um, a different translation in our Western culture. Sila is living in harmony by the careful consideration and the careful acting out of our speech and our behavior. So it's this sensitivity, this carefulness. Sometimes when we take the refuges and precepts from Seda Upandita, they're worded in this way. Um, I take careful consideration to refrain from acting out in these particular ways, speech and behavior through the precepts. Or in some, in sometimes I've heard him give the precepts saying, with great sensitivity, I'm careful about the acting out in these ways. So it's with deep respect, with great sensitivity for all beings, including ourselves. It makes not just for outer harmony, and this is the deeper wisdom of the precepts, but it makes for inner harmony, an inner sense of well-being when we are careful with our speech, our behavior. It's about not harming our own hearts when we're careful like this. There are certain, have been certain junctures in my practice along the way where I say, I want to clean up my heart more than I have been before. The last time, uh, one of the last times I went to practice, the teacher, the monk said, why are you here? And I said, I want to clean my heart more. And it's usually after I said or did something or I witnessed it in, in another, and I realized, ooh, you know, when you have that cringing moment, 
when you realize, oh, I don't want my heart and my life to go in that direction. It's not just when we see it in ourselves, but in others too. Out of compassion, we see that. So we have the precepts for that training and to remind ourselves that it's not a set of commandments. It's not like if this happens, if we forget about it and we act out or we say something that's um, in our speech, in our behavior, say or do something that causes a kind of disharmony uh, around us, that um, we just we retake the precepts. We say, okay, I'll pay more attention now. Sometimes we have to learn by the mistakes we make, of course. So it's not like if we don't do that, then, you know, the, the teacher will say, oh, now you have to do walking practice for five hours or something. It's like saying the rosary ten times, you know, <laughs> when I was a Catholic um, practicing that way, which I still take... Um, with quite a bit of respect, but uh, when we say, I undertake the training to refrain from killing, from stealing, from sexual misconduct, or here in retreat, from acting out our sexual behavior, from lying, from indulging in substances that cloud the mind, these are trainings. We do this with great compassion because we see the habit patterns, the compulsions of the mind to injure not only others, but to injure ourselves when we do this. It comes out of ignorance. It's part of the human condition. So we know this with compassion, not with self-deprecation or with deprecating others, but we see it out of compassion. We need to remind ourselves to catch these tendencies as soon as possible. When I find myself... Uh, going into these tendencies that harm myself and harm others, I try to take the precepts on the spot. I remember a friend of ours that he was saying something in jest, and the Buddha said to even one of his, um, his son, uh, actually, from Ra- to Rahula, he said, don't say an untruth even as a joke. <laughs> so one of our friends, we were sitting around the dining table, and he had just heard this, you know, this uh, in the, I think it was in the Rahula Sutta, actually, when the Buddha said this to his son. And he was saying something, but it was an untruth as a joke. And after he said it, he, he put his hand on his mouth, he practically hit it a little bit, and he said, oh, musawada, which means, you know, uh, when we say, I undertake the training to refrain from lying, uh, that's musawada. So I, I just remember that. So when that happens to me, I say, oh, even in jest, you know, be really careful what we say. Because as our teacher, Seda Upandita, one of our teachers said, how can you realize the truth if you don't speak the truth? It's really important. So pay attention, careful attention. The proximate cause, causes for careful attention to arise are known as the two guardians of the world. The two guardians of the world. And I, when I heard this at first, I, I was very interested in what does this mean, the two guardians of the world? 
They're known in the ancient language of Pali, that language that the Buddhist teachings were recorded in. These words of the two guardians are known as Hiri and Otapa. You don't need to remember this. It's just of interest to some of you who uh, like to know Pali. Hiri and Otapa. These are the underpinnings of careful attention. These are really the underpinnings of the precepts. Many fine translators use these Pali terms, and they don't go into English, but they stay with the Pali terms because they mean much more than the English words that we use to translate them into, which are quite inadequate, actually. So hiri, what does that mean? It's translated into moral shame when you just use a few brief words, moral shame. But it's not associated with self-aversion, this kind of moral shame. It's an inner sense, that moral shame. You know, I call it the cringing moment when we've known that, you know, we're not doing the right thing. There's an inner sense that our words, our, our behavior don't feel right when we've done that. Actually, this is a good sign. You know, when we feel this, it it should be to ourselves, oh, this is a signal. It's reminding us when we feel, oh, I I didn't say the right thing or do the right thing. That would lead to harmony. It's an intuitive sense. It's that it's not about hurting another. In this, in Hiri, it's about hurting oneself. We feel it in the moment. It's like, oh, that moment of tension and hardness inside. Yeah, it's painful. We see the danger to ourselves. And of course, when we take the precepts, we don't want it to continue. You know, we, we, we want to catch it soon. So it comes out of deep respect for one's dignity, for one's integrity. This is deep respect, Hiri, deep respect for oneself. It's deep respect for our karmic mind stream. Are we planting seeds in our karmic mind stream of unwholesome seeds of uh, behavior or words that will uh, bear fruit as unpleasant experience in our lives? So to be careful. Otapa. Otapa is moral dread or moral fear. And this is a healthy form of fear. Not only fear of the defilements, the defilements that come, you know, they're all under greed, hatred, and delusion. There are many of them when they're very well um, known and uh, defined, there can be like one of our grandfather teachers, Mahasi Sayadaw, says there can be over a thousand of them. You know how many strands of hatred there can be and greed, wanting. There's many different refinements of them. This healthy form of fear is that, oh, this will cause uh, harm to others, of course. We don't want that. It would break the harmony within our communal standards. You know that when we hurt another, that somehow it it ripples in the community. And 
one break in the community like that, then there's a, a feeling of unsafety there. There's not a feeling of settledness. We, we may dread the difficulties that come from that. This is where the dread part comes from. We dread having that happen in our community. It's healthy. We may fear losing the trust of others, especially the wise. There are many times when I have felt, uh, oh, if I, thinking about it, considering something that I would do ahead of time, would this, what I say, would this lead to uh, the wise in my community, those that I respect, or even the ones I love, would it lead to them having a sense of um, fear for me or having a sense of like they won't respect uh, my humanness? This is not about ego. So this hiriotapa is healthy. It's a healthy sense of um, knowing what's right, knowing what's wrong. Recently, a friend told me she had an interaction where she felt she was hurt and reactive. And she wanted to say something, but mindfully she knew she would co- it would come out the wrong way. She would just add more pain to the situation. So uh, she paused, which is a great thing to do. Just pause and to wait and to look within. She wanted to wait until she could rely on deeper resources to guide her as to what to say, as to what to do. She waited so that she would not hurt herself. That was Hiri, not hurting herself. She waited so that she wouldn't hurt another, so that she could say it at the right time, in the right way, with the right tone of voice. That's Otapa, respecting another respecting the community that she's in. So these are the two guardians of the world, Hiri and Otapa. The Buddha said, this magnificent chariot of the Eightfold Noble Path has Hiri and Otapa as its backrest. If you have this backrest, you will have something to rely on, to depend on, something on which you can sit comfortably as you travel toward your aspiration. If these qualities are weak, he or she risks losing mindfulness and all the dangers that ensue. So if we don't take all the practices seriously, the bhavana part of our meditation, the part that cultivates the purity of mind and heart, the wisdom that can come out of that purity, This is not likely to be strong or deep if the practices of sila or the other practices, the practices of dana, the Eightfold Noble Path, the whole of the Eightfold Noble Path is not taken seriously. Meditation is like taking a powerful medicine from the doctor. But the doctor also says, you take this medicine of bhavana or you practice this meditation But you also need to avoid uh, those places that cause hurt and harm to others, to yourself. In essence, you know, in a way of saying it, practical way, you need to avoid junk food 
you know, you can't just take the powerful medicine, then eat all the junk food in the world that you want. It won't work. In other words, if there's no ethics, then meditation is ineffective. Everything is interdependent. Wisdom, the purity of heart, depends upon our sila, on letting go, on the letting go that's developed through dana. So sila, dana, beautiful inner protections, they're beautiful forms of renunciation. Both of them are acts of letting go. There's a direct inner experience of goodness within us, purification that's happening. So I'd like to end again with this uh, quote from the Buddha. The purpose of my teaching of the holy life, of the Dhamma, is not for gaining merit, nor good deeds, nor rapture, nor concentration, but for the sure heart's release. This and this alone is the reason for the teachings of the Buddha. So let us end um, with the sharing of the merit. Now this is on the other side. Some of you who have been here uh, know this chant, and so the rest of us who haven't chanted this very much will catch up with you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.